Chapter Twenty Five of War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook. War by Pierre Loti, translated by Marjorie Laurie. Chapter Twenty Five: The Two Gorgon Heads. My plan is first to take possession. At a later stage, I can always find learned men to prove that I was acting within my just rights. Frederick the Second, called, for want of a better epithet, the Great. Part One: Their Kaiser, April 1916. There are certain faces of the accursed, which reveal in the end, with the coming of old age, the accumulated horror and darkness that has been seething in the depths of the soul. The features are by no means always ignoble, but on these faces something is imprinted which is a thousand times worse than ugliness, and none can bear to look upon them. Thus it is with their Kaiser. The sight of his sinister presentment alone, a mere glimpse of the smallest portrait of him reproduced in a newspaper, is sufficient to make the blood run cold. Oh, that vipering eye of his, shaded by flaccid lids! that smile twisted awry by all his secret vices, his utter hypocrisy, morbid brutality, added to cold ferocity, and overweening arrogance which in itself is enough to provoke a horsewhip to lash him of its own accord. Once in an old temple in Japan I saw a gruesome work of art, which was considered a masterpiece of genre painting, and had been preserved for centuries, wrapped in a veil, in one of the coffers containing temple treasures. It is well known how highly the Japanese esteem gruesome works of art, and what masters their artists are in the cult of the horrible. It was a mask of a human face, with features, if anything, rather regular and refined, but if you looked at it attentively, its appalling expression, at the same time cruel and lifeless, haunted you for days and nights. From out of that cadaverous flesh, livid and lined, gleamed its two eyes, partly closed but one more so than the other, and they seemed to wink as if to say, For a long time, while I lay waiting there in my box, I meditated some a ghastly surprise for you, and at last you have come. You are in my power, and here it is. Well, for those who have eyes to see, the face of their Kaiser is as shocking as that mask, hidden away in the old temple over there. It matters not in what kind of helmet, more or less savage in design, he may choose to trick himself out, whether it have a spike or a death's head. In all the years during which the terrible expression of this man has haunted me, I not only shared the presentiment common to everyone else that he was meditating some surprise for us, but I had a foreboding that his plot would be laid with diabolical wickedness, and would prove more terrible than all the crimes of old uncivilized times, and I said to myself, it is of vital importance for the safeguard of humanity to kill that thing. Indeed he should have been killed, the hyena slain, before his latent rabidness had completely developed, or at least he should have been chained up, muzzled, imprisoned behind close-set and solid bars. What could have possessed the anarchists, to whom such an opportunity presented itself of redeeming their character, of deserving the gratitude of the world, what could have possessed them? When there is question of killing a sovereign, they attempt the life of the charming young king of Spain. From the Austrian court, 
which held a far more suitable victim, they select and stab the mysterious and lovely empress, who never harmed a soul. And of the quartet of kings in the Balkans, their choice fell upon the king of Greece, when there was that monster, Coburg, close at hand, an opportunity truly unique. Their Kaiser, their unspeakable Protean Kaiser, whenever it seems that everything possible has been said about him, bewilders one by breaking out in some new direction which no one could ever have foreseen. After his almost doltish obstinacy in persistently posing his Germany as the victim who was attacked, in spite of most blinding evidence to the contrary, most formal written proofs, most crushing confessions, which escaped the lips of his accomplices, did he not just recently feel a need to swear before God that his conscience was pure and that he had not wished for war? Before what God? Obviously before his own, his old God, proper to himself, whom in private he must assuredly call my old Beelzebub. What excellent taste, moreover, to couple that epithet old with such a name! This Kaiser of theirs seemed to have received from his old Beelzebub not only a mission to spread abroad the uttermost mourning, to cause the most abundant outpouring of blood and tears, but also a mission to shoot down all forms of beauty, all religious memorials, a mission to profane everything, defile everything, and disfigure everything that he should fail to destroy. He has succeeded even in bringing dishonor on science by degrading it to play the part of accomplice in his crimes. Moreover, it is not merely that this war of his, this war which he forced upon us with such damnable deliberation, will have been a thousand times more destructive of human life than all the wars of the past collectively. But he must needs, likewise, attack with vindictive fury, he and his rabble of followers, all those treasures of art which should have remained an inviolable heritage of civilized Europe. And if ever he had succeeded in realizing his dream of morbid vanity and becoming absolute tyrant of the world, not by means of explosives and scrap iron alone would he have achieved the ruin of all art, but through the incurably bad taste of his Germany. It is sufficient to have visited Berlin, the capital city of Pinchbeck, of the gilded decorations of the Parvenu, to form an idea of what our towns would have become and with a shudder one contemplates the rapid and final decadence of those wonderful eastern towns, Stambul, Damascus, Baghdad, upon the day when they should submit to his law. This unspeakable Kaiser of theirs! How cunningly sometimes he adds to dishonor a touch of the grotesque! For instance, did he not lately offer as a pledge to that insignificant king of Greece his word of a Hohenzollern? The day after the violation of Belgium, to dare to offer his word was admirable enough, but to add that his word was that of a Hohenzollern, what a happy conceit! Is it the result of dense unconsciousness, or of the insolent irony with which he regards his timid brother-in-law, at whose little army, on the occasion of a visit to Athens, he scoffs so disdainfully? Who, that has some slight tincture of history, is ignorant of the fact that during the five hundred years of its notoriety, the accursed line of Hohenzollern has never produced anything but shameless liars, kites that prey on flesh? As early as 1762 did not the great empress Maria Theresa write of them in these terms. All of the world knows what value to attach to the king of Prussia and his word. There is no sovereign in Europe who has not suffered from his perfidy, and such a king as this would impose himself upon Germany as dictator and protector. 
Under a despotism which repudiates every principle, the Russian monarchy will one day be the source of infinite calamity, not only to Germany, but likewise to the whole of Europe. Unhappy King of Greece, who approached too near to the glare of the Gorgon, and lies to-day annihilated almost by its baleful influence, should not his example be as much an object lesson, though without the heroism and the glory, for sovereigns of neutral nations who have still been spared, as the examples of the King of Belgium and the King of Serbia? Their Kaiser, whose mere glance is ominous of death, baffles reason and common sense. The morbid degeneracy of his brain is undeniable, and yet in certain respects it is nevertheless a brain excellently ordered for planning evil, and it has made a special study of the art of slaughter. For the honor of humanity, let us grant that he is mad, as a certain prince of Saxony has just publicly declared. Agreed. He is mad. His case may actually be classified as teratological, and in any other country but Germany this war of his would have resulted for him in a straight waistcoast and a cell. But alas for Europe! The accident of his birth has made him Kaiser of the one nation capable of tolerating him and of obeying him, a people cruel by nature and rendered ferocious by civilization, as Goethe avers, a people of infinite stupidity, as Schopenhauer confesses in his last solemn testament. In some respects this infinite stupidity he himself shares. Otherwise, would he have failed so irremediably in his first outset in 1914 as to imagine up to the very last moment that England would not stir, even in the face of Belgium's great sacrifice? Footnote. In addition to a thousand other widely known examples of his shameless knavery, I record another instance, which, moreover, may easily be verified, an instance, perhaps, not yet sufficiently widely published. Be it known to everyone that on August 2nd, 1914, on the very eve of the violation of Belgium, when the German army was already massed on the frontier, and all the orders had been given for the attack the next day, King Albert called upon the Kaiser for an explanation. The Kaiser replied officially, through his diplomatist, The Belgians have no cause for alarm. I have not the slightest intention of repudiating my signature. End of footnote. And is there not at least as much folly as ferocity in his massacres of civilians, his torpedoing of ships belonging to neutral countries, his outrages in America, his zeppelins, his asphyxiating gas, all those odious crimes which he personally instigated, and which have had merely the result of concentrating upon himself and his German empire universal hatred and disgust? After forty years of feverish preparation, with such formidable resources at his disposal, shrinking from no measures, however atrocious and vile, trammelled by no law of humanity, by no pang of conscience, to wallow thus in blood, and yet after all to achieve nothing but failure. There is no other explanation possible. Some essential quality must be lacking in his murderous brain, and the nation must indeed be German in character still to suffer itself to be led onwards to its downfall by an unbalanced lunatic responsible for such blunders. They are led onwards to downfall and butchery, and is there never a limit to the sheepish submission of a people who at this very moment are suffering themselves to be slaughtered like mere cattle in attacks directed with imbecile fury by a microcephalous youth equally devoid of intelligence and soul? Part two, Ferdinand of Coburg. But recently it would have seemed an impossible wager to undertake to find an even more abominable monster than their Kaiser and their Crown Prince. Nevertheless, 
The wager has been made and won. This Coburg has been found. And to think that in his time he aroused the enthusiasm of the majority of our women of France. About the year 1913, when I alone was beginning to nail him to the pillory, they were exalting his name and flaunting his colors. Paladin of the Cross, as such he was popularly known among us. Oh, a sincere paladin he was, to be sure, wearing the scapular steeped in masses, after the fashion of Louis XI, yet one fine morning secretly forcing apostasy upon his son. Moreover, we know that to-day, for our entertainment, he is making preparations for a second comedy of conversion to the Catholic faith, which he recently renounced for political reasons, and over there he will find priests ready to bless the operation and to keep a straight face the while. He, too, has a gorgon's head, and his face, like the Kaiser's, is marked with the stigmata of knavery and crime. Twenty-five years ago, at the railway station of Sophia, when for the first time I came under the malevolent glance of his small eyes, I felt my nerves vibrate with that shudder of disgust which is an instinctive warning of the proximity of a monster, and I asked, "'Who is that vampire?' Summer replied in a low, apprehensive voice, "'It is our prince. You should bow to him.' "'Oh, no, indeed, not that. In a private life this man has proved himself a cowardly assassin, committing his murders at a safe distance.' for he prudently crossed the border whenever his executioner had work to do, by his orders. And then, as soon as any particular headsman threatened to compromise him, he would take effective steps to cripple him. Footnote. Penitza, Stambulov, etc. And this man, too, offers up prayers in imitation of that other. Recently, when there was a hope that his great accomplice was at last about to die of the hereditary taint in his blood, he knelt for a long time between two rows of Germans, convoked as audience, to plead with heaven for his recovery, a monster praying on behalf of another monster, and he arose, steeped in divine grace, and said to the audience, I have never before prayed so fervently. Those heavy-ridded boches, for whose benefit these apish antics were performed, were even they able to restrain their wild laughter? In political life, likewise, he is an assassin, attempting the life of nations. After his first foul act of treason against Serbia, his former ally, whom he took in the rear without any declaration of war, he endeavoured, it will be remembered, to throw upon his ministers the blame of a crime which was threatening to turn out badly. And again, without warning, he deals another traitorous blow to the same race of heroes, already overwhelmed by immense hordes of barbarians, like a highwayman who, under pretense of helping, comes from behind to give the finishing stroke to a man already at grips with a band of robbers. Poor little Serbia, now grown great and sublime. Lately, in my first moments of indignation at the report that reached me of deeds of horror perpetrated in Thrace and Macedonia, I had accused her undeservedly of sharing in the guilt. Once again in these pages, I tender her with all my heart, my amende honorable. And Germany's entente with Turkey was so little capable of being accomplished unassisted, it was found necessary to have recourse to the suicide of the hereditary prince. The entente with Bulgaria was made spontaneously. Their Kaiser, and this sign of the Coburgs, who emulates him, and is, as it were, his duplicated miniature, found each other fatally easy to understand. That such sympathy was likely to exist between them might have been gathered from a mere comparison of the two faces, each bearing the same expression of beasts that prowl in the night. 
How was it that our diplomatists, accredited to the little court of Sophia, suspected nothing nearly twenty months ago, when the treaty of brigandage was signed in secret? And to-day, until one devours the other, behold them united, these two beings, the refuse of humanity, compared with whom the foulest, most hardened offenders, who drag a cannonball along in a convict's prison, seem to have committed nothing but harmless and trifling offences. Arouse yourselves, then, neutral nations, great and small, who still fail to realize that had it not been for us, your turn would have come to be trampled underfoot like Belgium, like Serbia, and Montenegro only yesterday. The world will not breathe freely until these ultimate barbarians have been completely crushed. How is it that you have not felt this? What else can be necessary to open your eyes? If it is not enough for you to witness in our country all the ruin inflicted on us of set purpose and to no useful end, to read a vast number of irrefutable testimonies of furious massacres which spared not even our little children, if all this is not enough, look nearer home. Look at the insolent irony with which this predatory race brings pressure to bear upon you. Look at all the outrages, done audaciously, or by stealth, which have already been committed on the other side of the ocean. Or again, if indeed you are blind to that which goes on around you, at least survey briefly all the writings during centuries of their men of letters, their great men. You will be horrified to discover on every page the most barefaced apology for violence, rapine, and crime. Thus you will establish the fact that all the horror with which Europe is inundated to-day was contained from the beginning in embryo, there in German brains, and, moreover, that no other race on earth would have dared to denounce itself with such cynical insensibility. And you, priests or monks, belonging to the clergy of a neighboring country, who reproach us with impiety, and are the blindest of men in proselytizing for our enemies, torn over a few pages of an official manifesto addressed to the Belgian bishops, and tell us what to think of the soul of a people who continually take in vain the name of the All-Highest, and their burlesque prayers, and then make furious attacks on all the sanctuaries of religion, cathedrals, or humble village churches, overthrowing the crucifixes and massacring the priests. Is it logically possible for anyone, not of their accursed race, to love the Germans? that a nation may remain neutral i can understand but only from fear or from lack of due preparation or perhaps without realizing it for the lure of a certain momentary gain through a little mistaken and short-sighted selfishness oh doubtless it is a terrible thing to hurl oneself into a fray yet neutrality hesitation even become worse than dangerous mistakes they are already almost crimes an insane scoundrel dreamed of forcing upon us all the ways of two thousand years ago, the degrading serfdom of ancient days, the dark ages of old. He plotted to bring about for his own profit a general bankruptcy of progress, liberty, human thought, and after us, you, you neutral nations, were designated as sacrifices to his insatiable ogreish appetite. At least help us a little to bring to a more rapid conclusion this orgy of robbery, destruction, massacres, and bloodshed. Enough! Let us awaken from this nightmare! Enough! Let the whole world arise! Whosoever holds back to-day, will he not be ashamed to keep his place in the sun of victory and peace when it once more shines upon us? And we, when at last we have laid low the rabid hyena, after pouring out our blood in streams, 
should we not almost have a right to say, with our weapons still in our hands, you neutral nations, who will profit by the deliverance, having taken no part in the struggle, the least you can do is to repay us in some measure with your territory or with your gold? Oh, everywhere let the tocsin clang, a full peal, ringing from end to end of the earth. Let the supreme alarm ring out, and let the drums of all the armies roll the charge, and down with the German beast. End of chapter 25 Recording by Becky Cook End of War by Pierre Loti Translated by Marjorie Laurie This has been a LibriVox recording.